Now, last week, we looked at uh, verses 13 and 14, and uh, we saw in those two verses uh, two great principles that then we took and, and we illustrated those two verses with a great story in the Bible. And through that story and those verses, I wanted to show you how impacting and how absolutely vital uh, it is for you to have uh, the Word of God in your life and how that the big-time souls of life want to take that Bible from you. I've taught you for years and years. In fact, one of the first books that, uh, the first book that I ever wrote was How to Study the Bible. And uh, in that book, I talk about how that the Bible is a picture book. You know, we get the idea that the more educated you are and the more degrees you have, that the closer that gets you to God. And in actuality, in most cases, it gets you farther away from God. The smarter you are, the less you're going to trust God for, uh, for what he has for you. Uh, education without salvation is damnation, as old Bob Jones Sr. used to say. And uh, I don't mean this to be derogatory, or I don't mean this to be uh, crude or anything, but when it comes to God, the dumber you are, the better off you are. And uh, it's a thing where uh, the Bible is like, you know, when all of you who have kids, you know, you all started to teach kids the Bible when they were at a young age. And I doubt very seriously if you, you know, got Schaefer's systematic theology and sat down with them, or Ruckman's commentaries, or even when they were five or six years old, bought them their first wide-margin King James Bible. What you did was, is you got a book that the stories of the Bible, the verses in the Bible, were illustrated by pictures. You talk about Adam and Eve, and it would take a couple of verses or a chapter and talk about that, then you'd turn the page and there'd be a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. And then you'd study about the flood and Noah and read about that, and then you'd turn the page and there'd be a picture of the rain coming down and all the people in the ark. And the ark, the pictures illustrated for a child, the pictures will illustrate the truth of what you're trying to get the child to see. A child will understand things better and clearer and grasp them quicker if they have a picture to see what, the, what you're trying to tell them. Well, that's exactly what God did with the Bible. God put the Bible as a picture book. It shows you pictures all the way through the Bible that illustrates the great truths of the Word of God. Last week you saw that. You saw how that, uh, that in the story in the Old Testament, how that you had a man named Saul who actually tried to take the Word of God from the people. And we saw how that Proverbs 24, 13, and 14 got illuminated by studying the life and the story in the Bible that illustrated what those two great verses are dealing with. And it was a great lesson on how important a perfect Bible is for you. I live in an imperfect world. I'm an imperfect person. I'm surrounded by imperfect people. Thank you. I, <laughs> the last thing I want in my life, the last thing I need in my life is another imperfect Bible. That's the whole issue of this. Now, you know what? In reality, the only thing that separates us from all the other religions, all the philosophies, all the things that the world has, is the truth that we have an absolute standard that is perfect and without error, and it stands against everything else out there. Our absolute standard in a world of uncertainty. 
our absolute standard in a world, and I never thought I would say this, in, a, in an uncertain world of Christianity. And the devil will use God's people, as we saw last week, as we talk about all the time. The devil will use God's people to take the very word of God from you that God gave you. Now, I told you before, you know, that uh, when you lose your Bible, you fundamentally lose seven things. And these seven things are absolutely crucial. These seven things are not Bob's spiritual formula for when you lose your Bible. They're found clearly in the Word of God as a warning. Now, first of all, he says over there in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Verse 17 is our verse. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, the first thing that it says is that if you don't believe the Word of God, if you don't accept the Scripture as inspired by God and it's profitable for something, then there's no furnishings in your life. Now, those furnishings, my, 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 one of the greatest studies in the Bible will be going back to that Old Testament tabernacle and seeing the seven pieces of furnishings that's inside that tabernacle. And those furnishings are what God builds in your life once you get saved. It's, an, again, an incredible picture. It says that the man of God may be perfect. Truly, 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 from the inside out. It starts within you and then manifests itself out you. Truly furnished. Every new Bible on the market, the NIV, the ASV, the RSV, you name it. Every one of them takes the word truly and changes it to thoroughly. You know why? Because they have no clue that when you build a relationship with God and the, and, the, and, the, and the furnishings have to start in your life on the inside first. The second one is 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe the Bible you have in your hand today is the word of God? Yeah. Now, can it be the word of God and have errors in it? No. Then what you have then, according to this verse, not me, the verse. Forget me. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, then somebody had the word of God that they heard it from. You received it not as the word of man, but as it is truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also when you believe. You know what it says? If you don't believe it's the word of God, it won't work in you. Amen. The third thing, John chapter 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now, the third thing, that if you don't have his words and keep his words, you can't biblically love God the way God intends for you to love him. I'm not saying you don't love him, but you love him like you love your dog. You love him like you love your car. And that's why you, we, we don't stay consistent with our relationship with God. We're like, we're like the relationships. You know why marriages fail today? on an unprecedented rate because people get married without really knowing the person that they're getting married to. They fall in love and then later on they fall out of love. When you learn how to love somebody, when you learn to understand how that you learn to love somebody, 
That's what it takes with the Lord Jesus Christ. And you have to have his word for that. The fourth thing, John chapter 4, verse 24. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You lose your worship. You know, now you, you, you lose the whole Bible definition of worship. Now you think that worship is a service. Now your pastor Saul is going to get up and put on a marquee, or he's going to put in a bullet in the church. Ten o'clock worship service. He's going to get up, and he's going to take up the offering, and he's going to say, let's now worship God with our tithes and our offering. And I want to tell you, that sounds really good. It sounds really spiritual. But it's about as far away from the Bible as we are from planet Pluto. It has nothing to do with it. You don't worship God with your offerings. You don't worship God in a service. The Bible says you worship God in spirit and truth. Your spirit inside you with the truth of the Word of God. You, you live in a state of worship. You exist as a child of God in a state of worship, 24-7. It isn't something that you decide you're going to do at 10 o'clock in the morning in a service. Worship is defined by your spirit inside you, lined up with God's truth, and through that truth you develop a lifestyle of worshiping Him. The fifth thing, John chapter 15, verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. No power in prayer. We don't know how to pray today. We pray for the wrong things when we do pray. Amen. We don't know what we're supposed to pray about. The Bible says in the book of Romans, we don't pray as we ought. The Bible says that we have an infirmity. There's three infirmities in the Bible, and one of them is we don't know how to pray. And the reason why we don't know how to pray is because we've lost the power of prayer, because when you lose your Bible, that's what you lose. Now, the sixth thing. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my originals in your mouth. Is <laughs> that what it said? No, That's what they want you to say, believe it says. I guess I read it wrong. Uh, uh, see, I have, this, uh, uh, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth and said unto me, Behold, I have put my, my message in your mouth. Is that what it says? No, no. no, he put the words in your mouth. Now, are those words correct or are they incorrect? Correct. Are those words have error in them that he put in his mouth? How do you know which ones are error and which one is not? Because would you really want to get up and preach in error? Who decides which words God gives you as good and bad? God? You? No, no. When God put his word in your mouth, it gave you the power of preaching because they're his words. Verse 10. See, I have set uh, this day over thee the nations and over the kingdoms to root out, to pull down, to destroy, and to throw down, and to build, and to plant. Do you ever notice all you got to do before you can build somebody? And we got some great Christians here. We got some strong men and some strong women. And I'm telling you what, I'd put them up against anybody. But they didn't walk in the door that way. They walked in the door with all kinds of issues. They walked in the door with all kinds of problems. And it wasn't me. I had nothing to do with it. It was the words that God put in my mouth. It ain't my fault I got a big mouth. I'm sorry. God filled it up to the brim. And the only way you got to where you're at today is before anybody could ever build in your life and plan in your life, we had to root out some things, didn't we? Amen. You bet we did. We had to pull down some things in your life. Amen. We had to destroy some things. And we had to throw down some things. Then 
we built and we planted, and that's why you're where you're at today. The seventh thing. Be of a, uh, Jer- uh, Joshua chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance, the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all according to all that is written therein, and then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and have good success. The next, the last thing you lose is you lose your inheritance. You lose what God had for you. They got the promised land. It's called the promised land because it was built on the promises of God. When they rejected the promises of God, which was the word of God, they lost the land. And they lost their inheritance. And when you reject the very pure, pure words that God has given you, the last thing you lose is you lose your inheritance. Now, without a doubt, this is the state of Bible Christianity today. Without a doubt. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, talking about the church age that you and I live in, the Laodicean church age, who thinks it's so great, and thinks it's so big, and thinks it's so outstanding and in the world with God. And the Bible says, And knowest not that I were wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, you also remember that I showed you that when you get the Word of God, the honeycomb we talked about, the honeycomb, uh, you know, the honey, uh, then the Bible says that you get the knowledge of wisdom in verse 14 last week. That's an incredible concept. The knowledge of wisdom is the knowledge to be able to understand God's eternal wisdom. Let me say that again, because that's, that's inconceivable for many people. The knowledge, is, the, the, the knowledge of wisdom is the ability for you and me to understand God's eternal wisdom. Not just see it, not just read it, but see it and read it and then understand what he's doing. And my friend, that will set you apart from everything and everybody on this planet. As I preached a couple of weeks ago, it'll make you a real corn dog in a land of weenies. Now today... We want to move on through a few more verses, and today we will see how last week will tie into this week, because there's an ongoing theme through Proverbs, and even though we lift out principles and talk about them and how they apply to us inspirationally, there's a doctrinal theme that threads its way through the book, and I want you to see this. And we're going to see how last week will tie into this week uh, in the overall doctrinal theme of this thread that's coming through the book of Proverbs. So allow me to read for you Proverbs chapter 24, verses 15 through 18. Here's what it says. Lay not wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Spoil not his resting place. For a just man falleth seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let him not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth. Lest the Lord see it, and it displease, displease him, and he turn his wrath from him. Chris Piscano, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service today, please?
to take the words of your servant here and use to teach them that you would decrease and you would increase. And ask, Lord, that you would help us to receive your word. Amen. Amen. Now, what we're going to do today is I'm going to kind of walk you through this. And I want to, first of all, I want to show you how it ties in to what we looked at last week doctrinally. And then we'll come back and we'll take, we'll come back and forth and we'll talk about how that it applies in, in your life and my life. But let's look at verse 15 first and see what it says. It says, lay not wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Spoil not his resting place. Now, you probably don't have what I'm about to give you in the Bible. So if you got a little uh, repetograph pen, you might want to do it right now. It'll be easy or not put it in your notes. But here's, here's how it works. This is last week and how we looked at it. And remember last week now, we looked at the honey and the honeycomb and uh, how it was a picture of the Word of God that when somebody tasted it, they got enlightened and they saw what the problem was. And what the problem was, there was a man named Saul who was putting the people under an oath, a very non-biblical oath that was destroying them and keeping them from eating anything, the honey, which is a picture of the Word of God and then expecting them to fight the battle. So with that little reminder, let's look at what we have here. First of all, it says, uh, lay not wait, O wicked man. Now we know that the wicked man here in Proverbs will most definitely be the Antichrist. There's no question about that. We saw that over and over and over again. He's one of the main characters coming through the book of Proverbs. And we also know from our study last week that he will be typified by Saul. So that's who our, 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 our wicked man here will be in verse 15. Now the second thing, he says, uh, the dwelling of the righteous. That will be the nation of Israel. That'll be God's righteous nation. We're going to come back and look at these in detail here in a little bit. Then the third thing he says here, the place uh, of their rest. Uh, that'll be two things. That'll be the city of Jerusalem. It'll also be a reference to the millennial reign of Christ. Now, keep that in mind, and we'll come back to this here in a little bit. But I have to give you that so we move on through here so it makes some sense to you. Now, last week, we saw Saul put the people of God under an oath. And I told you that Saul is one of the 18 types of Antichrist in the Bible. And he puts them under an oath not to eat anything before battle. And the Bible tells us, we saw it last week, that this troubled them and it distressed them. It made them weak so they couldn't fight. And, and he put them under an oath to keep them away from the honey, for any food, for any substance that was going to give them strength to fight the battle. In other words, by doing this oath, he made them weak. He, we saw how it was a picture of today, of the Saul today, how they will tell you that the King James Bible is no good, how you can't trust it, it's untrustworthy. And they'll take the very thing that God has given you and replace it with some, 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 some Bible that has nothing to do with God in any way, shape, or form, and then we wonder why Christianity is falling apart. But I want to talk to you about the oath for a moment. Because you need to study the concept of an oath in the Word of God concerning the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 12, all the way back in the beginning, you will find that Israel was told to take an oath to God. It says back there, thou sh uh, thou, uh, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God, and unto his oath 
which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day. Then back in Deuteronomy 29, God made an oath and a covenant with the nation of Israel for them to stay with him, be true to him, and be everything that God wanted them to be to him. Then, when time moves on, we know how the nation of Israel gets all screwed up. They get into Baal worship. They get into all the things that, that they shouldn't be. And then by the time we get right before the captivity, right before Nebuchadnezzar comes down and Shennacherib comes down from Assyria, then in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 59, we see where Israel breaks that oath. For thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with thee as thou hast done, which has despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And then in Zechariah chapter 8, verse 17, and Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 11 through 14, now we'll see where the nation of Israel, who took the oath of God, broke the oath of God, now makes an oath with the Antichrist. Watch very carefully. Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 11 through 14. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, that'll be Israel, uh, Know ye not what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon has come to Jerusalem. He's a type of the Antichrist. He also is one of the 18 types. He hath taken the king thereof, and the princes thereof, and led them with him to Babylon. And hath taken the king's seed, and made a covenant with him, and hath taken a oath of him. He also hath taken the mighty of the land, that the kingdom might be base, that's low, that it might not lift itself up, but that by accept, uh, weeping of his covenant it might stand. There is a passage where he told you that he has taken now, a nation of Israel has taken a covenant and made an oath with king of Babylon historically, Antichrist in a prophetic sense. Look at Zechariah chapter 8 verse 17. God speaking to the nation of Israel through Zechariah. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. That oath that Israel takes historically was with the king of Babylon. We know that. Doctrinally, it's the Antichrist, the future reference. As in an oath and allegiance to the Bible says in Revelation chapter 13, verse 15, 16, 17, 18, where they have to take his name, they have to take his mark, or they have to take his number. Now, allow me for just a moment, so you get all this straight, allow me to explain how all this works. We know that the tribulation period is a time coming after the rapture of the church, when God turns his attention to the nation of Israel. We can look across the world scene today and we see the hand of God forming and shaping every world event for the upcoming uh, tribulation period. He's got the Jew back in the land. He's got them circled like they were in the Old Testament by all the enemy nations. Everything is set up. The Gentile nations are at their peak, ready to fall. And we know that the tribulation lasts seven years. When the Antichrist finally does come, the tribulation in your Bible is divided into, three, into two sections. The first three and a half years, the second three and a half years make seven. And we know that the first three and a half years, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2, or 3, that when the Antichrist comes, he lulls everybody into a false peace. He brings peace to the world. He solves all of the problems. And he, he makes an alliance with the nation of Israel. They take an oath of him. And he, he, he pretends to be their friend. He pretends to be what they, uh, what they're, their Messiah. And he pretends to be the Christ to everybody that's left after the rapture of the church in the world today. 
And the Antichrist, the Saul's today, has lied to them in the tribulation period, just like the Saul's of life have lied to you today. And the Antichrist tells the Jews, everything's going to be okay. Well, it's not. And the Saul's of life will tell you today, oh, take that NIV. Everything will be okay. And it won't be when you get to the judgment seat of Christ. But that's how they operate. And then at the midpoint, at the three and a half year mark, the Bible talks about in Matthew chapter 24 and Daniel chapter 8, it talks about what we know as the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist now goes into the throne in Jerusalem. He sits down on the throne and he claims to be God. And now he demands everybody to worship him. The Jews, like Jonathan last week, and Jonathan, where Saul's a type of the Antichrist, last week we didn't get into it, but Jonathan's a type of the Jew in the tribulation period. Jonathan got a little honey. And when he got a little honey, he saw that his father really was the problem and who his father really was. In the tribulation period, after that midpoint, the Jews are going to get a little honey. Moses and Elijah come down. I suspect that they'll get into the book of Daniel. They'll get into the book of Hebrews. They'll get a book of James, Matthew, and Job. And now, suddenly, they'll get enlightened. Suddenly, their eyes will be opened. And now they'll see who the Antichrist really is. And now the Bible says in Matthew chapter 24, Proverbs chapter uh, 21, verse 19, they flee from Jerusalem. They run into the wilderness. They go to Petra, the rock city. They, they hide, and the Antichrist now tries to find them and hunts them down and tries to wipe them out. Now that's the doctoral connection to the story last week. And you begin to see how that these verses today will fit right along into that. Now, for us, that's the doctrinal side, and I want you to have that. But now I want to talk for just a few moments about the, <clears throat> about the spiritual, practical side. Now, when we think about the Antichrist, we simply think of him as all we've heard him to be. I mean, there's probably more in books today, movies today, that uh, focus on the Antichrist, and we submit ourselves to that. <clears throat> we listen to that, we watch that, we read that. And what happens is we tend to allow what everybody else says about him to form our picture of what he really is. And I'm telling you, and uh, it, it doesn't work that way. The truth is, the Bible says that there are many Antichrists. We think of the man of sin, the son of perdition that we all know and love. We think of the guys we talk about on Bible study, the guy who goes stamping a 666 on your license plate and on your forehead and your hand. That's all the farther we ever take the Antichrist. But the Bible is clear. I'm going to show you here in a second. The Bible is clear that there is many Antichrists. Turn over to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Let me explain myself. <clears throat> He says in verse 18 of 1 John chapter 2, Little children, this is the last time as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come. Now there is the Antichrist we all know. Even now, now he just said the Antichrist is going to come, but he says even now there are many Antichrists. See that? Whereby we know that it is the last time. 
He just told you that there's an, the Antichrist is coming, <clears throat> but right now in the last time, there's a lot of Antichrist. It works like this. <clears throat> in the Bible, you find the word devils, and you find the word devil. <clears throat> and somebody says, how do you know the difference? Well, here's how you look at it. You find that there are devils, they are unclean fallen spirits, and then you find there is the devil that we all know. And you'll find that there are angels in the Bible. That's the multitude of the heavenly folks. And then the Bible says there's the angel, the angel of the Lord. In other words, there's one, there's one antichrist who is the man of sin, but there are people that are associated with him in life that are antichrist in everything that they do. Now, the word antichrist is simply a, a combination of two words. Anti, which is Latin, against and Christ. In other words, against Christ. And by the Bible's own definition, <coughs> any man who rejects the Holy Spirit of God, or the Father, God the Father, or the Word, is an antichrist. Now look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. I'm going to show you one of the most amazing things that preachers don't preach about today. Because they don't want to preach on their kinfolk. Look at verse 6. First John, if you don't have this note in your Bible, put it in there at some point. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8 are three of the greatest verses in the Bible on the Trinity of God. <clears throat> the next time you want some Jehovah Witness or somebody <clears throat> that proved to you there is a Trinity, this is all the way you got to go. But I got to tell you this. You better have a King James Bible because the NIV, the ASV, and any other translation on the market leaves out 1 John chapter 5, 6, and 7, and 8 because they don't think it should be in there. So if a Jehovah Witness has an NIV and you have a King James, you're going to show him where it's at. He's going to show you that in the real Bible it isn't there. See? See how it works? Now how did 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, 7, and 8... <coughs> the three greatest chapters on planet Earth, how did they get left out of an NIV? There's the only clear verses in the Bible that states clearly, and I'm going to read it to you, that God is a trinity. How in the world did the greatest verses in the Bible proving the trinity get left out of your NIV? I'll tell you why. Because when Origen did the work on the Greek text back in 100, 200 A.D., he didn't believe there was a trinity, so he took those verses out. And your scholars took his manuscripts to put out the new Bible versus the manuscripts that only one that has it in. And it's the one that your King James Bible came from. Don't tell me about the Antichrist. Now let's read it. Verse 6. Talking about Christ. This is he that came by water and blood. Even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And this is the Spirit beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Now let me make a reference there. John wrote 1 John. John also wrote the Gospel of John. The Bible says that when John is standing there, watch the Lord being crucified, and that Roman soldier takes a spear and puts it into his side, the Bible says that water and blood came out. Now the average person who just reads that doesn't pay attention. But if you read the next part of the verse, it said, and John says that that water and blood testified about something. 
Let's see what it testified about. Verse 7. For there are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. Now he just told you that up in heaven there's three that bear a record. It says that it's the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. What happened to Jesus Christ? He he on vacation when this was written? Why, it should say the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But it says the Father and the Word. You know why? Because in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now let me ask you a question. Is there more than one Jesus walking around? Oh, are you sure? Yes, sir. I mean, when you get to heaven, will, be the, will there be multiple Jesuses? I mean, the Bible says he's the word. If he's the word, did Jesus, does Jesus contradict himself when he speaks? No. Does Jesus make mistakes? Did Jesus ever say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Did he? No. You do. Amen. I do. Did you ever find in that Bible where Jesus ever made a mistake in dealing with somebody? You ever find a place where Jesus says, man, the woman at the well. You ever find out when that was all over, Jesus said, you know what, I could have handled that better. (laughs) I do. You do. Did Jesus ever have to go back and correct anything that he said? Then why in the world, if there's only one Jesus, and he's absolute in the final authority in what he says, and the Bible says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and the Word is up in heaven, and he replaced the very Son with the word Word, how can you have multiple translations that don't agree and say the same thing? I'll tell you how you do it, because you take 1 John chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 out of your Bible. (laughs) That's exactly how you do it. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three, here it comes, and these three are one. Greatest verse in the Bible on the Trinity. Showing you that that the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost are one. Look at verse 8. And there are three that bear witness in the earth. The Spirit and the water And the blood. Ah, and these three agree in one. Now what you have here is the Bible says there's three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And then it says there's three that bear record in earth. Now all three of these are reference to Christ in his earthly manifestation at the first coming of Christ. It says the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now, what he's saying here, and this is what John testified when he put the Spirit aside and water and blood came out. We knew that Christ came from the Spirit. The water represents his sinless birth, and the blood represents his sinless nature. Christ is the only man in the history of the world that didn't get his blood from his Father in an earthly sense. Acts chapter 28 says that he got his blood from his God's blood in his veins. The difference between him and you and me is the fact that I couldn't die for anybody because my blood is just as polluted as yours is. But when this man died, this man was sinless in his spirit, 
sinless in his birth and sinless in his nature, that in his blood, God's blood, was enough redemptive power for a hundred zillion billion people. If you take the position that you do, uh, that any one of these is not absolute and perfect, if you say that the Father is not perfect or the Word is not perfect, and again, notice how he sneakily slipped the word Word in for where it should have been Christ, trapping you in a play right up the middle. I mean the Holy Spirit of God snapped the ball, handed that middle section, the Word to the Son, right up the middle, and the, the whole line collapsed. You know what he just told you? He just told you, if you don't believe the Son and the Word are perfect and absolutely perfect, you're an antichrist, Pastor Saul. Though I know <laughs> that's not popular. I found in my life, personally, most truth with me is not very popular. We don't want to hear the truth. Amen. We want to hear what we want to hear. The big time souls with their mocha mega churches with the thousands of people out there bowing down and, 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 and just uh, showing hominence and reverence him like his God. They, they have a tough time coming to the place because you reject that book that God gave you that God himself put in the place of his son. And we've already agreed that there's only one Christ. Why, Paul himself, he told him over there in the book of Galatians, he says, if any man preach unto you another gospel or come with you with another Jesus, what did he say? Let him be accursed. But oh, the Paul, the big Saul's get up today and tell you that there's all kinds of Bibles. Pick the one that is easiest for you. It's like in the newspaper, they got all the churches. We're not in the newspaper, by the way. That'll be across the headlines. Go to the church of your choice. You never want to do that. Amen. You go to the church of your choice, you'll go to one that tells you what you want to hear. Amen. You go to the church of your choice, you'll tell you one it's okay to social drink, okay to do this, okay to do that. You never want to go to the church of your choice. You want to go to the church that's God's choice. Amen. That's where you want to be. And John chapter 1 verse 14 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that's why Jesus, when he came down, he didn't contradict himself. He didn't say, oh, what I just said was a mistranslation or a mistake. He was absolute and perfect in every word that he said. Because the Word of God is settled in heaven, Psalms 119 verse 89. The Word of God is perfect. The Word of God is God's very Word that He wants to touch your mouth with so you can give people the Word of God. And I want to tell you something. He came down and spoke perfectly and gave perfect judgment and gave perfect rhetoric and gave perfect advice and gave perfect talk because He was a perfect book. Amen. Amen. And I don't even have a college degree. I figured that out. Say, where'd you get your degree? Fort Benning, Georgia. Where'd you get yours? <laughs> now, let me show you a word. And I tell you this all the time. God translates, or God uses words differently than we use them. 
And this is part of the problem we get into because we're so naive when it comes to the Bible. There's a big issue today about when life starts and when life ends. There have been many of people, you know, the abortion issue and all of that, they look at it and they, uh, in the medical world and the, uh, all the Christians out there, they all have their idea when they, life starts. The Catholics say it's a conception. The, you know, the doctors say, well, when it, you know, it's heart, got, a, got a heartbeat, it's got this, it's got that. And uh, everybody has their own opinion on it. And dying is the same way. I don't know how many times that, uh, you know, somebody had a loved one and uh, the loved one was on life support. And the doctor said, there's no hope. And they come, have called me on the phone and says, what do we do? What do we, what do we, what do, we do? I mean, uh, the doctors say that they're, they're dead. Uh, what, what do we do? Do we pull the plug? How do we handle this? What do we do this? Uh, because it, I get it. It's a thing. You don't want, you, you don't want to pull the plug on somebody if, you know, sometimes people are in a coma, but they know what's going on around them. And the last thing you want to do, I get it. It'd be tough unless you didn't know your Bible. The last thing anybody wants to do is walk over there and pull that plug and, and inside they're saying, oh no, don't do that, no. I know, and boom. That's tough. How do you know? Do you think the Bible doesn't tell you how you know? You think God just kind of left that out because he didn't know how to handle it? No, no, no. We didn't get into the Bible deep enough, strong enough, far enough to find out that life isn't when your doctor says it begins, and life isn't when the, your doctor says it's over. The Bible defines when life starts, and the Bible defines when life is over. You find those two points, you got something to work with. You don't? You wring your hands and you fret. You picket abortion clinics, which I'm not saying you shouldn't. I think you ought to blow them up. But you, you, picket, you, you picket all these things, and you take all these stands, and yet if somebody threw an open Bible in your lap and said, show me in the Bible, don't tell me about your doctor, don't tell me about your, your, your little group, take me to the Word of God and show me where life begins. And then take me and show me where life ends in the Bible. Because it isn't about your perspective, the doctor's perspective, some group perspective. It's about the absolute standard that God give us will give us a definition of life and death. That's my definition. You know, it's the same way with, with a lot of things. I mean, a lot of things in life. And, you know, uh, when, it comes to, uh, when it comes to words in the Bible, it isn't about what we think it means or what Webster says it means. Or what your collegiate college dictionary says it means. And I'm not saying those are bad. I have all of those books. But my fundamental source of defining things is not Webster. It isn't the collegiate volume of, of encyclopedias or dictionaries. It is a King James 1611 authorized version. Now we're talking about up in heaven. We're talking about the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three being one. And then the Bible says the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now you take the word translation in your Bible. You know it's only found four times in your Bible. You find the word translation or translated. And we believe and we think because of scholarship, because of the Saul's, we have come now to the place where we believe that when we think of the word translation, we think of going from one language to another. 
And if you would ask your pastor, don't ask me, if you would ask your Christian friends, what does the word translation mean? What does the word to translate something mean? They would say, oh, that means to go from one language to another. Now, that may be as the world defines it. God never defines it that way. You want to understand this great issue about Jesus Christ, the Word? Then you understand how God uses the word translate or translation. The first time you find it is in the life of Enoch. And the Bible says that Enoch was translated that he should not see death. So Enoch was translated into another language? See, the Bible doesn't define translation or translate like you and I do. We translate it one language to another. God translates it one place to another. That's how he does it. So when the Bible says that Enoch was translated, should not see death, he went from earth to heaven. That's how it works. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10, it talks about somebody being translated into the kingdom. One place to another. At the first coming of Christ, the word of God was up in heaven and it was settled. And when God brought Christ into the world, he translated from one place, heaven, to this earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word got translated into the flesh from heaven to earth. When God's course was finished with Christ, in Acts chapter 1, when he ascends back up into heaven, now God translated him from here as a person back up into heaven, and now you have the translated word of God, which is the mind of Christ, which is Christ himself. At the first coming of Christ in heaven, it was settled and it was translated to Christ. In the church age, Christ now translated into a book. And the Bible says in Psalm chapter 40, verse 7, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, that now Christ has come in a volume of a book. Now, with that being said, as I said, verse 7 and 8 are two of the greatest verses anywhere in the Bible on the Trinity. And they are the two verses that are missing in all the new Bibles. And I'll say it one more time. There's only one family of manuscripts in the history of the earth on planet earth that has those verses in it. And it is the Antiochian text out of Acts chapter 13 where they're first called Christians from which your King James Bible come from, from which all the other Bibles do not come from. And are laughed at and made fun of today by the Sauls. So just as in the tribulation the Jews get a little honey and their eyes get opened last week. Jonathan as a type of the Jew in the tribulation period. And they see Saul for who he really is. We today, you and me, we get a little honey and we can see now that our eyes are opened and we see who all the Antichrists are that he was talking about in the last days. There are many Antichrists. Those who deny that God Christ and the Holy Spirit are all one without error. Though you couldn't have a perfect God and a perfect Holy Spirit and a word that was imperfect and still be, as 1 John 5, 7 and 8 says, still be in agreement. 
For them to be in agreement, they all have to be perfect. And brother, there's plenty of them around today that want to take that perfect book from you. You say, well, your church is a cult. And you're a cult leader, okay? And you're the Antichrist. You have taken the three things in heaven that make heaven what it is. And you'll say God is perfect, and you'll say the Holy Spirit of God is perfect, and yes, you'll even say Christ is perfect, but the Holy Spirit snapped the ball, you ran up the middle, and you got clobbered. Because in that verse, he took the very Christ out and put the Word in, trapping you in the position that if you don't take the Bible's perfect as God is and the Holy Spirit of God is, you're the Antichrist or a Antichrist. <laughs> Maybe you are the Antichrist. I don't know. Now look at verse 15. It says, The wicked man come up against the dwelling of the righteous. Now this will be the land grant that was given to Abraham, which we all know as the promised land. It starts from over in Egypt, comes across the baseline over to the Ur of Chaldees, which is modern-day Baghdad, and then goes up in a pinnacle, pyramid shape, up to uh, western, southern Turkey, or Mount Arat, where Noah stopped and the boat came down. This was given to the nation of Israel through Abraham in Genesis 15, 18. And in Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, uh, he lays out the millennial reign of Christ and his kingdom is set up. This is called the royal land grant. It's given to the nation of Israel all the way back in Genesis. Now, I need to say that right now, Israel has none of that. Israel doesn't even have all of Jerusalem. The Mask of Omar, where the Dome of the Rock is where the temple will be built, is where the original temple was built, bought by David back there in the Old Testament, is under Muslim control today. The Jews don't even have it. You'll find that all down through history that the devil has tried to keep that land. He's done everything in his power from Genesis with the sons of God uh, to while Egypt, they, well, they're down in Egypt for 430 years. He's, he's fortifying the land over there to keep them out. It's David who goes in, Joshua first, and then David who wipes out the rest of them, who actually takes that land. And the only time, the only time in the history of the world that Israel had all of the land that was granted to them was in that short 40-year period when Solomon came to the throne. And then that all fell apart, and they come back in and swarmed it, and look where we're at today. Ezekiel chapter 48, and you want to get Clarence Larkin's book on dispensational truth. If you ever want to chart it out, he does a phenomenal job. Ezekiel chapter 48, you'll find the picture of the land there and each tribe, its inheritance. The dwelling of the righteous. Then it says in verse 15, spoil not his resting place. Now that will be the city of Jerusalem. The first time Jerusalem shows up in the Bible is Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. And the Jews don't have it. There's been a number of pagan nations that held that land before the nation of Israel got it. Jerusalem means city of peace, haven of rest. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, David finally wipes out the uh, Jebusites. 
and takes Jerusalem, and at that point he dwells there and he makes it his capital, and from that point on, the Jews now center everything they do around Jerusalem. It's called the city of peace. But there's been 33 major wars or attacks on it before 1948. It's absolutely the key to Israel's relationship with God and the rest that he has for them. And of course, in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the city of peace that God had for them. And you want to see the notes in your Bible on the nation of Israel and God's rest for them. You'll want Hebrews chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. You'll want Hebrews chapter 4, where it says that they never entered into that rest. He tells you this in Hebrews 3. They never entered into the rest. God had a rest for them, Jerusalem, but they never entered into it because of their unbelief and because of all the things that they did. So he comes through there and he tells them all the things that happened to them. And then he says in Hebrews chapter 4, he tells us that there remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. That'll be the millennium. That'll be when Christ comes back and establishes Jerusalem as his throne. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the city of peace and rest for the nation of Israel. But they never really got that rest. Short period of time, and then it was over. In the New Testament, the place of rest for you and for me is God's church and God's Bible. That's the place of rest. And in both cases, the Antichrist of the Old Testament and the Antichrist of the New Testament and the Antichrist in the tribulation will try to spoil what God has given you. Next week, and I'm not anywhere near finished yet, but next week I'm going to show you how you rest in the Bible based on Israel's rest that they never got. And very frankly, the rest that most of God's people never get. And the reason for it is a wicked man hath taken the book from you. They have taken the only thing that will give you the peace and the rest. Just like in the Old Testament, the only thing that would give them peace and rest was Jerusalem with God, and they kept giving it away. Look at verse 16. Now this is a good principle for all of us. For a just man falleth seven times and rises up again. Now, the just man here doctrinally, you ought to be able to pick it up by now, will be the nation of Israel. The seven times will be the seven years of the tribulation period. That's pretty easy. And the nation of Israel goes through a seven-year period where he's knocked to the floor, but he arises as a nation and gets all that God promised him in the millennium, the restoration of the nation of Israel, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11, thousands of places, or at least hundreds of places in the Bible. And this happens in spite of the wicked man, the man of sin, the Antichrist. Now, the practical application is a great one for you and me. And the message for you and for me is simply this. No matter how many times you fall, keep getting up. Amen. Don't quit. We find different spirits in the church today. And one of the spirits that is so prevalent in God's people today is the spirit of defeatism defeated before they ever get started. You listen to most sermons in most churches, you'll begin to understand why. There's nothing of any substance. 
there's nothing that gives them any hope. In most churches, you hear a salvation message and the invitation is given and they'll sing 6,000 stanzas and uh, they want people to get saved because the more people that get saved comes into the church, the bigger the church gets. They could care less about the people that are there. Uh, I've, often, I've often thought my own philosophy, you know, uh, I want people to get saved, but honestly, don't take this wrong. I, I don't really care if you do or you don't. That's God's business with you. I will preach to you the truth. I will love you. I will open up a Bible. I'll put a thousand people in your life, your world. Uh, we'll camp up. We'll stay in your spare bedroom, whatever it takes. I want you to get saved. But at the end of the day, my job is not getting you saved. My job is preaching to you the truth. You have to get saved based on your own relationship with God. But let me tell you where my responsibility does come in. Once you do get saved, then I have a tremendous responsibility to take care of you. Give you everything that you need. Make available for you everything that you can grow. Get you discipled. Put people in your world. Put people in your life. Have a Bible institute where you young men and young ladies are as sharp as a tack and really learn the Bible. Have a people ministry where I can take the things that I've learned over the years uh, and, and give to you that you too can, can now stand on your own and help me do what God's called us to do here. I mean, uh, it's a thing where, um, you know, it's, it's, but we're defeated today because pastors and churches, the souls of life, the Antichrist, the very book that God gave you that is the steel in your backbone, they want to take from you. They want to take from you the sword of the Spirit and give you a butter knife. And a great example of this for you and for me will be the life of David. Now the Bible says that in Acts 13, 22, that he's a man after God's own heart, and he certainly is. The Bible says in 1 Kings 15, 5, that he did what was right all the days of his life in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. He's without a doubt the greatest king Israel ever had. I mean, every king that follows him, they always compare him back to him. And if I would suggest to you, if you ever wanted to do a good study of David's life, A.W. Pink, Arthur Pink, has a book called The Life of David that I think is probably the greatest devotional, practical book on his life that you'll ever get your hands on. It's about that thick. It's an incredible book. But a study of David's life will reveal that he falls so many times, it's a wonder he didn't break every bone in his body. I have listed for you, for our comparison, the seven major falls of David's life. In 1 Samuel 19, 12, when he's up against Saul and Saul's trying to kill him, instead of trusting God, he loses faith in God and he, he runs from the danger and he's a coward. In 1 Samuel 21, 13, he's up against another king who's afraid he's going to kill him. The king's caught him. He's standing by the gate of the city, so he feigns that he's mad. He has spit come out of his mouth like he's crazy, you know, foaming at the mouth. And back then, they didn't kill crazy people. And he escapes. Everybody knows in 2 Samuel 11, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Everybody understands in 2 Samuel 12, he commits murder with Uriah the Hittite. Two sins that in under the law, there's no, there's, no, there's no sacrifice for. In 2 Samuel 24, 1 and 1 Chronicles 21, 1, David numbered the people. 
terrible thing that he did. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 39, he plays favorites with his own kids, Absalom in particular, and a wine back, backfiring and destroying him and getting Absalom killed and all of his kids killed. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 1 through 3, he makes an alliance with the enemies of God, which he knows he's not supposed to do. And yet through the process of the Word of God in his life, no matter how many times he fell, he got back up again. His prayers of forgiveness and repentance should be etched in gold. They should be put on black velvet studded with diamonds. There's such a picture of the brokenness in his life. And through the process of the Word of God and him not quitting in his life and him not giving up, he winds up the greatest king Israel ever had. He winds up God saying about him, not the writers, not history, God himself says he's a king and a man after mine own heart. And that isn't all. He winds up a prince in the millennium, Ezekiel 34, 24, and Ezekiel 44, 3. He winds up in a prince in the millennium sitting next to Christ on the throne. And if that wasn't enough, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, he thought so much of him that he borrowed the title and said, I'm the son of David. Now you think about that the next time you want to quit. You think about that the next time you want to give up. You think about that the next time your burden gets so heavy you just think you can't go any farther. And when you study his life, you'll find out that he's not a perfect man. He's not, I'm not, and you're not. And the great lesson is in spite of himself. And the great lesson for you and me in spite of ourselves he loved that book so much, he just never quit. Uh, you see people today that their whole life is just about one thing, quitting everything they start. They'll never finish anything in their life. They'll start school, they won't finish. They'll start a job, they won't finish. I've seen guys go uh, into a church and take a, take a church and uh, things didn't go the way they wanted to or beyond working in a church, things didn't go the way they wanted to, they quit. There is a real value in our lives, kids, of being sure that before you get into something, you're sure God is in it. And if you're sure He's in it, then you stick with it. Because He's got something at the end. We don't want to pay the price today. But we don't. We, we don't want to pay the price to get what God has for us. We live in such an entitlement society today. We live where your kids graduate from school. If they don't have a Ferrari sitting out in the parking lot, there's something wrong. They want to sue you and, and leave home. <laughs> they want everything handed to them on a silver platter. That's the generation that we live in. They don't understand a work ethic. They don't understand that you've got you've to put some things into something to get something out of it. They'll stick their toe in the water. If it's too cold, they're done. There's some of God's people who have been saved 5, 10, 15, maybe 20 years, and they never read their Bible through one time. And yet they've started 100 times. They just can't finish. There's people that have had issues in their life that they struggle with that, that makes them quit all the time. Uh, you see them in all churches. 
I mean, uh, there's uh, there are people that come for a while, then they're gone. You had to put a revolving door in for them. They just quit. Uh, the greatest hallmark word for Christianity today is that we're a bunch of quitters. We got our website. There's a bunch of people on watching today. Most of them have come to the point where they live away someplace, don't have a church. Some of them are sick, some of them are out of town. But I'm not under any illusion that there aren't people that are watching it that should be in church here today, but don't come to church here or anywhere else. And you decided that you're just going to stay home and watch it. The church is not going to be a priority in your life. Over the very fact that the book of Hebrews says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. You want to, don't want to be part of it. And you just sit home. You, you take all of the tremendously great Bible that's being preached to you. I'm kidding you. You take all that we have. You sit there, you're probably putting your notes in your little notebook on your coffee table while you're, you're having your little latte and you're having your little tea and little crumpets along with it. And you just didn't want to bother coming up and coming to church today. Yes, I'm belaboring this point. I am. You know why? Because I want you to shut us off and don't get back on the website again. If I had a way to cut you off, I'd cut you off. In fact, Woody tells me there's a button that we can detect now that when you should be here that we can just push that thing. <laughs> it's like your cell phone. You know, the greatest iPhones are incredible. They are. I got one. I don't know how to use it. I got one. <laughs> I keep asking for the weather. I get it in Alaska. Like, I care what it's like in Alaska. But I want to tell you something. No matter how technical they get, no matter how all you can do with them, the greatest feature on your iPhone and your cell phone is still the delete button. Gone. You know why you're that way? Because you quit. You still want the Bible, you want to become spiritually fed, you just don't want to give back to God anything based on what he's given for you. You've quit. And I know you got your excuses. I got your excuses. Save them for me. Bring them up at the judgment seat of Christ. You you and I don't have one problem that David didn't have. And he made it. And so can we. Just don't quit. Seven times, get up. 20 times, get up. Keep moving forward. And sooner or later, you know how many flights, I was reading a biography about Chuck Yeager, who's always been a hero of mine. You know how many flights they made before they finally broke through the sound barrier? It was incredible. You know how many guys died trying to do that? It was incredible. You know how we finally broke through the sound barrier? We didn't quit. And that old demon out there at Mach 4 wanted to tear the wings off those planes and tear and destroy them and kill those pilots, and he just kept going up. They just kept going up. And finally, one guy went up and pushed the, pushed the envelope and busted that thing wide open, and the sound barrier now is history today. We go five times the sound barrier today, all because one man wouldn't quit. And that old demon in your life lives out there about Mach 4, and he wants to tear your wings off and keep you from being the eagle that God wants you to be keep you being a scarecrow in a cornfield someplace. And the only thing that'll ever get you there is that you keep getting up and you keep going and you keep fighting and you keep, and sooner or later you will punch through. 
Now look at the last part of the verse. But the wicked shall fall into mischief. Mischief, I've told you this before. Mischief in the book of Proverbs and really the Bible, we use it in a, you know, oh yeah, little Johnny got into some mischief. It ain't like that in the Bible. Mischief in the Bible is a serious thing. It's an old English word. It has a very bad connotation. And it, it comes to the place that if you, don't, if you don't keep getting up and you don't keep going and pushing forward, you're going to fall into mischief. And that mischief will destroy you. Uh, it'll, it'll take, uh, it'll take uh, everything from you and you'll wind up in a world of hurt. You see a good example of it if you want a story back in Genesis chapter 4 verse 7 with Cain. Cain and Abel were bringing their offerings. Abel brought his. God said, that's great. He took it. Cain brought his fruits and vegetables. God said, I can't take that. Cain was upset. God says, what are you upset about, Cain? He says, if you do what's right, he says, uh, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll accept it. But he says, if you don't do what's right, sin lieth out the door. The moment you and I don't get up and move forward and keep going, sin lieth out the door. People leave this church because you don't want to get right with God. You don't want to do what's right. Or you don't want to reject the teachings of the Word of God. You get mad at me or get mad at somebody's disciple you. And you walk out that door. Sin is lying right by the door. You'll pick it up on your way out. From the Bible to the bar. And in some churches, to the bar with your Bible. Look at verse 16 and 17. Rejoice not when thy enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbleth, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he take away his wrath from him. Now, this is, this is really a great truth, because let's be honest, we all like our enemies to suffer. Yeah, yeah. Well, this morning I was on the internet just going through some things and looking for a, a particular YouTube thing on how to do something, and... Uh, I, I saw this thing pop up, the five most horrible executions in the history of the world. Well, I got to see this, man. <laughs> they were horrendous. And I would be lying if I was thinking I had a little list there. I was, never mind, anyway. <laughs> now, here's a great truth. And a great principle found in two places in the Bible that we all need to get and understand. It's found in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, and again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30. And it simply says, Vengeance is mine, and say to the Lord, I will repay. Amen. Now, darkly, that's the Jew of the tribulation. It's pretty, it's me and you. You want to remember from our study a couple of weeks ago in the book of Job, whatever adversity you go through, whatever trial somebody's putting you through, whatever somebody is doing to you, like Job's three friends or the devil himself, remember now there's always a message in the adversity. And you don't want to miss the message by becoming vengeful. You let God be God and allow Him to deal with your enemy. Because when you have understanding, you know why people do what they do and what they'll do to you and say about you. You don't get into the habit of trying to justify yourself. Let God do it for you. You know, time is an amazing concept. And when something goes down or something happens and nobody understands the full story, 
and nobody understands what really has transpired, and everybody wants to jump on and make their judgments about whoever, whatever. The bottom line is that I've learned in my own line, when nothing else will tell, time will tell. God said to me one time, he says, well, you know, you see this situation over here, and, and uh, this, this gal is really doing good, doing well over here, and, her husband over here, he's, you know, he's got going to church anywhere and all this stuff. He, he, he says, you know, he's got his story. She's got hers. He said to me, he says, you know what? I think the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. You know, that's never true. You know where you always find the truth? You always find the truth where the hand of God is. That's where the truth will be. The truth will always be where God's blessing is. And uh, many times people who want to portray themselves to be godly have some of the biggest messes in their life you ever saw in your life. And the people they portray to be ungodly, God has got his hand all over them. You just look and find the truth where God's hand is. Let God in time reveal at the end of the day who was right and who was wrong. And when that happens, we don't want to get to the place where we rejoice over your enemy when God is Dealing with them. Now, there's three great examples of that in your Bible. First of all, in 2 Samuel 1.17, David didn't do that. Saul was his worst nightmare. You know how many times David had a chance to kill Saul and end Saul going after him, and he wouldn't do it because he understood the principle, you touch not the Lord's anointed? And when a messenger came in that said, Saul's dead, Saul's dead, Jonathan's dead, You'd have thought that David would have been dancing around and cheering. No, the Bible says that David lamented over the death of Saul. Jesus didn't. The Bible says he came unto his own, his own received him not. And yet Jerusalem, the scribes and the Pharisees, they hated him. They wound up killing him. But in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, you know where he is? He's over on a hill overlooking Jerusalem, praying for them and weeping for them. Paul didn't. After what his own people did to him, how many times they stoned him, they beat him, they put him in prison. And yet, when it came to his own people who he should have disdained and hated and asked God's fire and judgment, you know what he said? He says, I wish myself a curse for my people Israel. There's some great lessons here that and these lives that we don't want to miss. And, I, and I'll tell you the reason why you don't rejoice. Verse 17 says, Lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from them. And man, oh man, is this a principle we all need to learn. Now here's what he's saying. You want to understand, it's not that you're enjoying your enemy's fall and being trampled and then God stops because of your vengeful spirit and your attitude. It's more than that. Oh, it's much more than that. But rather, it comes back to the fact that God has a message for you and for me in the adversity through our enemy. And it's going to be delivered to you by your enemy. And we get so caught up with the joy over the demise that we never get the message. So God sees that. <laughs> he stops his hand on him and allows him to recover and come back and beat on you some more till you get the message. I will tell you something. Nothing will take the... Si nothing, 
<laughs> Nothing will take the wind out of our sails more than us gloating over our enemy being crushed to death and then him recovering and coming after you again. God, why? I thought he was dead. Lord, I thought you were going to kill him. I thought he was down there. I was so, I was rejoicing. Oh, and God said, yeah, I was going to do that, but you never got the message that I wanted him to deliver. So you know what? I'm going to pull my hand off of him, and I'm going to send him back to you. Let's see if you get the message this time. Oh, woo. Never get joy out of somebody else's falling. And I know we all do, but we ought to try not to. I've seen people that had great potential for God, and they, they did some really stupid things. And all of God's people were rejoicing because they went down. I'd much rather lament over the fact, pray for them of what they could have done, and hope that God someday would restore them. But God's people aren't much for restoration today, unless it's for themselves. They're not much for forgiveness unless it's for themselves. They want God's forgiveness for the stupid things that they do, but oh, they'll never forgive some stupid things that you and I will do. That's Christianity today. You don't get joy out of your enemies falling. You just thank God that at the end of the day, no matter who your enemy is, what your enemy says, time will always reveal the truth. You know why? Because God ultimately has got your back. But it has to be in His time. Let God deal with them. We get the message that God has through the adversity, and then we take that and we keep on going. We allow God to take your vengeance out on your enemies. You stay out of it. Stay focused on what God has called you to do, because, boy, nothing will pull you off task more than you getting angry, getting bitter, getting to the point where you put all that emotion into something that you can't really fix anyhow. I've seen some of God's people get so bitter at, at things in people, and so bitter uh, because of something that they couldn't let go of, something that happened in their life, something that they should have just moved on, or something that somebody did to them. Let me tell you something, my friend. When the hand of God is in your life, you do not have to worry about what somebody did to you, tried to do to you, or is thinking about late at night doing to you, because God's got your back. And that's where you stay with it. That's just where you stay with it. You have to stay focused on what God's called you to do. Because if you don't, it'll pull you off. And you'll get so focused on what they're saying, what they're doing, instead of just resting and trusting in the Lord next week. And you lose your whole perspective. And you, then you get bitter. You know what bitterness is? Bitterness is like you having an enemy that you can't stand. Somebody that you just detest. And they just eat you alive all the time. Bitterness is like you taking poison and hoping it's going to kill the person you don't like. It only kills you. Because you focus so much on that, you miss everything else that God is doing for you. And I won't be honest with you. Life's too short for that. I'll tell you something else. God's too good for that. People like that usually have nothing going with God in their life anyway. Because if you do, and you got the hand of God in your life, you can care less, man. As long as you and God are getting up in the morning, walking through lunch together and going to bed at night together and holding hands throughout the day, <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that. Amen. Stay focused on what God's called you to do. Your focus of your job. He'll do his job 
you do yours. You stay focused on life and what God's called you to do and you let God plow the road for you. But it will all come back to the peace and the rest in your life. It'll all come back to that perfect Bible that you have that when everything else fails you, when everybody else is against you, when everything in life is so imperfect, you have one solace, you have one place you can go, you have one refuge that is absolutely perfect. And that is the perfect word of God that he has given you. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. You lose that, you got nothing. And next week we'll look at the peace, the rest of the believer. How do you rest in a world that we live in with all the turmoil, all the personal problems, your family, the issues, people around you? How do you learn to rest? I'm going to show you next week as God gave to the nation of Israel. Well, we'll hold up there.